0: Anybody come here to go through the motions this morning? Neither did I. Good. Let's pray. Lord, you're big and you love us. That makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. Anybody remember 1995? Who remembers 1995? Yeah. <clears throat> Some of you are too young, Maybe. Some of y'all maybe you're too old to remember 1995. Um, 1995, I remember, everybody was seems like they were talking about the O.J. Simpson trial for a while there, right? It's like every TV you turned on, there it was. And um, one key moment I just came to my mind this week from the O.J. Simpson trial was that O.J. Simpson's defense team, they succeeded in making the whole trial, the whole case about one question. They said it really all just boils down to this one question. Anybody remember what that one question was? It's about this glove, right? This glove that was found at the murder scene. It had blood on it. And it was, hey, if this glove doesn't fit O.J. Simpson, then there must be at least reasonable doubt that he was the one who committed the crime, right? So that's where that famous phrase came from. If the glove doesn't fit, then what? Then you must acquit. Right, yeah, exactly. So they succeeded in framing it as here's here's what it is. This is what it's all about. It's this one question, right? And then, you remember when O.J. Simpson put on the gloves and he had to pull them on and it took a while and he's putting in all this effort to try to get the glove on over his hand? The defense team says, see, there's at least reasonable doubt that that he didn't commit the crime because it didn't fit him, right? In our text today... In Acts chapter 26, would you turn there with me? Uh, In Acts chapter 26, Paul's on trial as well, and there's one similarity between the O.J. Simpson defense and Paul's defense. Uh, As you're turning there, let me just remind you that in the last few chapters, Paul has been standing before councils. He's been standing before crowds. He's been standing before rulers, making his defense And now, in today's text, he's standing before a Roman governor named Festus and a king, Herod Agrippa II. And he, Paul, is going to frame this whole trial, this whole case, as though it really just boils down to one question. He's going to say in his defense that this really comes down to one issue, one thing. Uh, I'm going to read chapter 26 of Acts right now, actually all the way through. It's a long text. so let's just take a moment and clear out distractions, other things we're thinking about. People who are texting us right now, just block it all out. and We've got to be locked in as we read Acts chapter 26. And as we read, I want you to look for what is the one question, the one issue that Paul says this is all about. This trial, his life, everything, it all comes down to this. What is it? Please follow along as I read, starting in verse 1 of Acts chapter 26. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. And Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that as before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? among those who are sanctified by faith in me. All right, about halfway done. Everybody shake out the shoulders a little bit. Let's continue. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Today, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things, in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king, that's Agrippa, knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. It's the word of the Lord. Did you catch the question? Did you catch what Paul thinks this all hinges on? He led with it right there at the beginning, verses six through eight. Right? Take a look there again. Verses six through eight, he framed the whole issue. He said, I stand here on trial because of what? Because of my hope. By hoping what in the promise, and then we start asking, well, what is the promise that he's hoping for, that he thinks is why he's here on trial this day? And we keep reading in verse 7, he talks more about the promise, and in verse 8, he tells us what it is, that God raises the dead. It's the resurrection. That's, That's the central issue that Paul says that this all hinges on, that Jesus, the Messiah, rose from the dead. So that's our big question for today. It's the question that I'm asking each person here. Is Jesus still in his grave? That's what it all comes down to for you and for me. Is Jesus still in his grave? And Paul, by the way, isn't just framing the issue as if it's really about this when it really isn't. Uh, Festus himself, after he heard Paul in the last chapter, you might remember, at the end of chapter 25, he told Agrippa, hey, here's the best I can figure out about what this is all about. It seems like there was this man, Jesus, who was dead, but whom Paul thinks is alive. That's the best I can gather from all of this discussion so far, okay? It all boils down to this, is Jesus still in his grave? There's something in this text for each of us this morning, for the one who believes that Jesus is still in his grave, and for the one who believes that Jesus has risen from the dead, right? Um, So we're going to take time and walk through the text, and first I'm going to speak to those who don't believe that Jesus is risen, and then I'm going to speak to those who do believe that Jesus is risen. So first, to those who don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, I have two questions, two statements for you. First question is for those uh, in, a, in a large portion of Americans, and there's surely some here today, who don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, but who still do have some kind of belief in some sort of God, some sort of higher power or deity who's out there, who's above this world and not limited to our physical world realm, okay? This is a question for you, and it just comes from the question Paul raised in verse 8. Is it really so unreasonable that God can raise the dead, right? If you believe in a God, is it so unreasonable that this God, who at least had some sort of hand in making everything, according to what you believe, and who in some way stands above this world and the galaxies, is it so unreasonable that that God that exists would be able to raise someone from the dead, Right, so if you don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, okay. But if you don't believe Jesus rose from the dead because that sort of thing just doesn't happen, I want to challenge you to think again. If you believe in a God, is it so unreasonable that that sort of God could raise the dead? Just a simple question to start out. My next one is a statement, and it's particularly for those in the room who might be Jewish but don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. If you're Jewish and don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, Paul paints the picture this way. This, the resurrection of Jesus, was the promise of God to your fathers and it is also the hope of your people. Do you see that astounding claim that Paul made in verses six and seven? And then he goes back to it in 22 and 23, doubles down on it. He's claiming that Abraham, when Abraham raised the knife to kill his son Isaac, he was trusting that one day Messiah would rise from the dead and be the firstborn of a new resurrection life. When Moses spoke about a prophet like himself who was coming one day, when David sat down to pen the 16th Psalm, and he wrote about this holy one who would never see decay, Right? Paul saying that they were all writing in the hope one day of a Messiah who would die and then rise again from the dead. Paul goes so far to say that devout Jews in this day... And we could extend it to our own day. Devout Jews who still pray and worship are praying and worshiping in the hope of a Messiah that will one day come and then rise from the dead. Now, some of you might be like, you know what? I'm going to have to take exception with Paul there. Because, yeah, I get that he was a great scholar in his time before he gave his life to Jesus. I get that he studied under Gamaliel and had great learning. But I am Jewish, or I know Jewish people, I know not that not many Jewish people are living with a conscious hope in the resurrection of their Messiah. That's not what they're thinking about as they pray and as they worship. But I think Paul anticipates that objection, and I think what we hear him saying in response is, look again at your own scriptures, right? In verses 22 and 23 of our text, Paul says that, When he's talking about the Christ, the Messiah, suffering and the Messiah dying and the Messiah rising from the dead, he says he's saying nothing more than what the law and the prophets testified must happen, right? He's not going a word beyond it. That's an astounding claim. And there's many people in this congregation who would love to walk you through that in more detail, myself included, if that's something that you're interested in. But just a little teaser to whet your appetite, we can just do it from one chapter in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible. From Isaiah chapter 53, a well-known text that is talking about this servant of the Lord, this figure who embodies Israel, who one day uh, would be considered a Messiah figure. Here's what it says about him. It says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. So this Messiah that's being hoped for is one who's going to suffer. And then it says, well, beyond suffering, he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. That sounds like this Messiah has died, right? Just out of the land of the living. They made his grave with the wicked. This Messiah is thoroughly dead by verse 9. And then verse 10 says, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. How, how could his days be prolonged if he's dead? Is this, is this hinting at a resurrection for the Messiah? And we see in verse 12, it certainly is. Therefore, I will divide with him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul in the past to death and was numbered with the transgressors. This Isaiah 53 paints a picture of a Messiah who suffers and dies and then comes back to new life again. The Hebrew scriptures are full of a testimony to a resurrection existence that is to come a new heaven and a new earth that in the first instance comes about by the firstborn from among the dead the messiah who rises to new life again you may not have seen that before in the hebrew scriptures but when we look closely at it paul's right this is nothing novel that he's saying he's only saying what's been foretold from the law to the prophets and onward it's He's only saying what's been hoped for by generations of Jewish people, uh, hoping for the redemption that would come from a a Messiah who would be risen from the dead. So I've asked a question, I've given a statement. Another question, it's for the one who doesn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, the one who's maybe the most hostile toward that idea here this morning, the one who's most opposed to it. And the question is just, are you ready for God to break down your defenses? Question might seem impertinent, but many of us in this room have experienced it that when we were the most hardened and hostile to God that we ever were, that His pursuing love came and invaded our hearts and didn't let up and relentlessly pursued us until He won our hearts to Himself. Did you see what Paul was doing five minutes before he met the risen Jesus? Verses 9 through 11, right? He told the story. He was rounding up Christians to have them thrown in prison and even killed, right? If you would have told him in that moment that he was going to become the greatest missionary that Christianity has ever known, he would have laughed in your face, right? But then the risen Jesus showed up on the road to Damascus and kicked in the door to his heart and knocked him flat on his face so that he said, Lord, Lord, and that risen Jesus overwhelmed him with his pursuing love until Paul got up from that Damascus road ready to do whatever that Lord Jesus would ask him to do. Are you sure he won't do the same for you? I had a mentor in high school. His name was Brian Trost. Uh, he was my, uh, he was a leader of a mission organization called Young Life. And they had it at our school. And um, he used to ask us, those of us who were believers at the school, he used to ask us, who at your school is the most hardened most hostile to Christianity who's the least likely person in your school to come to know Jesus and our senior year the answer to that question was clear we we all said Nick Iwema Nick Iwema is the one who's least likely Nick Iwema was the guy who before our football games on Friday nights you'd look over at him in the locker room and he'd have like dozens of push pins just stuck into his shoulder because he wanted to make himself angry before the game started um, he was dealing drugs in the school. Our, our senior year, this is not a lie, he stole one of the teacher's cars from the parking lot on lunch break and took it to the mall. Um, Nick Iwema thought that Christianity, religion, all of it was a joke, right? Um, so we all said, Nick Iwema, he's the one, he's the furthest away. And so Brian said, okay, I'm going to start praying for him. I'm going to start praying that he comes around one time and hears the gospel at one of our events. And so Brian started praying for him. We did because we thought that it felt bad not to. And then sure enough, Nick Iwema came to an event and heard the gospel. It doesn't seem like anything ever came of it, but we were just astounded, shocked to see him show up. And he got to hear the gospel. Nine years later, fast forward, uh, didn't seem like anything had ever come of that. But nine years later, my wife Sarah and I are at this conference in Atlanta. It's called the Passion Conference. There's 60,000 young people there in this stadium in Atlanta worshiping the Lord. We had brought 20 high school seniors there. And I get a tap on my shoulder. And I turn around and it's Nick Iwema. Right? And I was like, Nick, what, what are you doing here? I hadn't thought about him or seen him in nine years. And he said, I'm a youth leader at my church. And I brought a bunch of students to the Passion Conference. Right? To this day, Nick Iwema is walking with the Lord. And some of you were just like Nick Iwema. You were in that same situation. And the Lord, you can testify to the power of the risen Lord Jesus to break down anyone's defenses and win us with his pursuing love. Right. Maybe someone here this morning is going to be the next Paul, the next Nicawima, the next one who comes in with their teeth clenched against Jesus but leaves ready to take a bullet for him. I wouldn't be surprised if God did it. It's my prayer this morning that somebody would be in those shoes, that the Lord, as I'm speaking this morning and as you're reading the Word of God, that the Lord's Spirit would come upon you and that you too would be saved by Him. One more statement to those who don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, just want to be clear that your opposition to the resurrection of Jesus isn't merely intellectual. That's not what's going on. It's not merely intellectual that you disagree with the resurrection of Jesus. If our problem, if our fundamental human problem was that we have a lack of information, then gaining more intellectual knowledge would be the answer to that problem, right? But that's not the way the Bible talks about it. That's not the way our text today talked about it, right? Look at verse 18, how Paul uh, frames the issue, uh, actually, it's Jesus speaking. He frames the issue as he's speaking to Paul. What's the state of humanity in verse 18? Uh, the state of humanity is that people are blinded, right? They're in darkness. They're stumbling around. And it even says there that they're under the power of Satan. Did y'all realize that? That nobody's born on God's side? Did you realize that nobody's even born neutral? like a free agent that could go either way. Like, we are born under the power of Satan. That's what Jesus teaches right here in our text, and that's what Paul goes on to teach in Ephesians 2. Jew or Gentile, we're born under the power of Satan. That's our default condition. And it takes more than an intellectual argument to free us from the rule and control of Satan, the evil one, who just wants to steal and kill and destroy us, right? It takes the power of the risen Jesus to break us free from the chains of that rule that we were under and bring us into a new kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom where there's life and love. So we need more than intellectual arguments. We need power. And, you know, we need power for another reason, too. It's not just that because we're under the power of Satan we need to be broken out of that. We also need power, not just intellectual arguments, because... We treasure our sin, don't we? By nature, by default, we treasure our sin. Some people have genuine intellectual questions about the faith. I'm really not trying to downplay that. But for many people who have intellectual questions, their hang-ups with Christianity aren't really intellectual when it really comes down to it. That was the case for my friend Chris. He, uh, when I was a high school teacher, he was in my American history class over the course of that year, he came to profess faith in Christ. He was all fired up about Jesus, wanting to soak up everything he could learn. And then after a year or two of that, he started coming around to me with questions about the faith. Uh, hey, is the Bible really reliable? Hey, isn't this a contradiction in the Bible? And I would walk him through the questions he had and show him that there were really great answers to these questions. Once you understand how the Bible's written and what it's meant to do, a lot of these questions uh, become non-questions, honestly. And he was actually pretty persuaded by most of my answers, but he would just come back with another question each day, and another, and another. They became increasingly obscure questions, right, that didn't really have a lot, it seemed to me, to do with his heart. And so one day I just asked him, you know, Chris, forgive me if I'm wrong, but this seems like this isn't really about any intellectual hang-ups you have with Christianity. It seems to me like maybe what it is, is that you want to live the way your friends are living. You want to live a life that's apart from Jesus, and get to be free to do the things that you want to do, sinful things. And if you can find an intellectual way out, then you'll have feel the freedom to do that. Is that really what's going on here? And he thought about it for a minute and he said, yeah, I actually do think that that's what's going on here. I just can't, I, I just really want to do what my friends are doing. I want to live this way. There are many people in that camp, Right? Sure, we have intellectual questions, but really, bottom line, when it comes down to it, we treasure our sin and we don't want to let it go. And I wonder if that's a little bit of what was going on with Herod Agrippa in our text. Like, did you notice that as Paul makes his whole case, Herod doesn't say one word of objection in response to any of Paul's arguments, right? All that happens is when Paul starts to ask him, Hey, what about you, Agrippa? I know you believe the prophets. Do you believe what I'm saying? He, does, he can't even deny it. He can't even push back on any of it. He just says, are you trying to make me a Christian right now? Right. And I wonder, I wonder if Agrippa maybe could have been convinced by Paul's arguments. Maybe he could see that what Paul was teaching actually did line up with the prophets. But to Herod Agrippa's side is this woman. Do you see what her name was there? Bernice. This Bernice was the Marilyn Monroe or Kim Kardashian of the day. It was kind of like always in the news, like what famous, powerful person she was being seen with at any given time. So um, at the time of this text, we know from actually multiple sources outside the Bible that agree that she, who was actually Agrippa's sister, was living with him in what was widely rumored to be an incestuous relationship. So I wonder how much of it is, that Agrippa doesn't believe what Paul's saying, and how much of it is that he treasures the sin that he's living in and doesn't want to let it go, right? And he knows that if he acknowledges the truth in what Paul's saying, that the risen Jesus that he's talking about then has a claim on his life, and he doesn't want that, right? We need more than intellectual convincing. We need the power, power of Jesus, the power of the resurrected Jesus, not only to overcome the power of the evil one, but also to overcome the grip of sin that it has so tightly on our hearts. That's enough uh, for those who don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Let me spend the rest of our time picking on those who do believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Just two questions for you this morning. The first is, does your relationship with sin reflect that Jesus is no longer in the grave? Does your relationship with sin reflect your belief That Jesus is no longer in the grave. Here's where I'm coming from with that. Paul meets the risen Jesus, right? He turns around and starts preaching like Jesus commissioned him to. Did you see the content of Paul's message verse 19 and following? See how Paul describes in his own words what it was that he went out preaching? We might expect him to say, So I went out preaching. Accept Jesus into your heart. He doesn't say that. What's he go out preaching? Declared that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. That's Paul's summary of his message. According to Paul, according to the scriptures, if Jesus is risen and I believe that, then I need to break with my old way of life. I need to repent. I need to turn. I need to stop walking in the sin that I was walking in, turn toward God, and actually start walking in another way. And if we were thinking maybe he's just talking about some ambiguous type of just spiritual turning and not concrete actions of sin, he says it, right? Perform deeds in keeping with your repentance. The testimony of Scripture is clear, friends, that... If we say we believe in the resurrection of Jesus, but our lives can be fully and thoroughly explained, even if Jesus is still in the grave, then we haven't actually experienced the Christian life yet. The Christian life is one that has been revolutionized by the resurrection of Jesus. And I mentioned this when it came up a few weeks ago in our text, and I know some people struggled with it, that the Christian life is a life with no unrepentant sin, but in our conversations, I'm becoming more and more convinced of how critical this is for the life of our church right now. So I'm going to just continue bringing it up as it comes up in the text that the testimony of Scripture is unified, that the Christian life is one of repenting, turning from our sin and not treasuring or harboring or nurturing any sin in our heart on an ongoing, willful, continual basis. The Bible doesn't just speak as though Jesus came to pay the debt for our sin, although it does say that, and that's critical. It doesn't just speak as though Jesus came to take the punishment for our sin, although it does say that, and that's critical. The Bible speaks as though because Jesus has risen, he came to take our sin itself, right? In other words, I don't have to live in that sin anymore. I don't have to be in chains to the sins that... I used to think I couldn't get out of, right? That I used to be helpless to, fa- to fall into. I don't have to be in that anymore. If Jesus is risen from the dead, then he is right about offering me to take out my heart of stone and give me a heart of flesh, a new heart that wants the things that he wants, that loves the things that he loves, that hates the things that he hates. And I'm telling you this, I know it on a firsthand basis. I was the one who was raised in the church, Uh, who knew all the answers about the Bible growing up in Sunday school, Um, but was scared to death as a teenager because I knew that I had a secret life, secret sin that I was nurturing, that nobody knew about, that I really felt like I could not break free from, like I was stuck in it. Like, no matter how hard I tried, I tried so many different things. I couldn't break free. I heard so many sermons that motivated me to change my behavior, and I would be so fired up to change, and I couldn't change. And it was a scary place to be. And I've told you before, then there's just one Sunday morning. It was an Easter Sunday, and I heard the gospel for the 5,000th time I had heard it. Same message, that Jesus died and then rose again in my place. And because he rose again, he's seated at the right hand of the Father from where he sends the Holy Spirit to give me power to break free from the chains that were in my life. And for whatever reason it was that day, as the word was being preached and as I was hearing about the resurrection of Jesus, I just knew that God had done it. I could feel the chains break in my heart. I knew that I didn't have to go on doing that sin anymore. Now, don't get me wrong. I could go back to it if I wanted to, but I wasn't stuck in it. I wasn't bound to it. I didn't have to keep sinning anymore. I had been given something new in my heart that now loved what God loved and didn't love that sin or treasure it anymore. God can do that, friends. He wants to do that. That's what he does in the life of a Christian. The life of a Christian should have a new relationship with sin, that reflects that Jesus is no longer in the grave? Second question for those of us who do believe in the resurrection of Jesus, do your relationships with unbelievers reflect your belief that Jesus is no longer in the gra- grave? If, if we were to watch you interact with the unbelievers in your life, would that line up with the belief that Jesus is no longer in the grave? I'm sometimes um, caught off guard by how many Christians here on the North Shore have given up on trying to reach their Jewish friends and neighbors with the gospel? Right, you had two or three bad experiences in which you put yourself out there and tried, and it was received uh, negatively, uh, or you got a hostile response, and so you said, "You know what? That's just that's just too hard soil. That's just not happening." So you've kind of directed your attention elsewhere, maybe to people who grew up Catholic and now are no longer in the church, but. Jewish people, your Jewish friends and neighbors, they're kind of off limits now. Right? But I'm just struck over and over again, but that's that's a mentality that Jesus is still in his grave, right? Like if Jesus is alive, if he's no longer in his grave, then he's not a lifeless king who's powerless to do anything about our friends' hearts, right? If Jesus is no longer in his grave, then he can turn any heart to himself. He We shouldn't assume that any of our friends are too far gone or too hardened to his gospel uh, to be reached by the risen Jesus. That's Paul. I mean, if anybody had a place to assume that it wasn't going to be received well, it, it would be Paul on trial in front of people who seemingly are among the most hardened type of people to the gospel, right? But what does Paul do in this chapter? He turns his trial testimony into an evangelistic sermon. You saw it happen, right, in verses 24 to 29. The whole thing just shifts, and he just says, you know what, this is between you and me now, Agrippa. We're going to go with this right now. Let's go. Agrippa, you and me, where are you with this Jesus? I know you believe the prophets. You're hearing what I'm saying. Do you believe what I'm telling you, Agrippa? Right. But how many of us won't do that with somebody like Agrippa who believes the Old Testament Hebrew Bible prophets? but doesn't yet believe in the risen Jesus. Others of you, I know, others of us are willing to get in that conversation and talk about the gospel-ish, but you're not willing to do, or you have a really hard time doing, what Paul does in verse 27. And that's to make that direct to ask. To stop circling around it and just kind of talking in vague generalities about Jesus and what you believe, and really get down to it and say, okay, but where are you? Where are you with Jesus? What do you think about Jesus? Where are you at with all this? Like, what is going on in your heart when I'm sharing all this with you? Right? But think about how crazy that is, right? What other good news would we just kind of share in generalities and never extend the offer to the person we're talking to? We wouldn't do that for a cure for a fatal disease. We wouldn't do that for any good news, right? But for some reason, the greatest news of all, we get so timid. And we maybe will be bold enough to kind of talk about it a little bit vaguely, but then we won't make the direct ask of, hey, what are you going to do about this? Where are you at? And actually, you may be aware, maybe unaware, that some unbelievers are disgusted by us because we won't love them enough to make that direct ask. Here's a couple examples. Penn from Penn and Teller. Um, a magician, right? Devout atheist. Strong, strong atheist. But he has talked multiple times about how Christians have come up to him after his shows and try to share the gospel with them. And here's how his take on it is, I'm glad that they do. If I believed what they believed, then they should be coming up to me and trying to tell me about Jesus. It would be hateful of them not to, right? So here's how he said it one time. If I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point that I tackle you. And this, like life and death, resurrection, is more important than that, right? He doesn't believe in Jesus. He says that if I did, then I would be pleading with everybody I knew to believe what I believed, right? One more example. Charles Peace, criminal in England a century or two ago. Um, he was about to go to the gallows to be hung. He had just received the death penalty. Um... And the preacher did what preachers did at that time, tried to share the gospel with him as he's walking to the gallows, right? But this preacher kind of shared the gospel in kind of like a lackluster, kind of like half-hearted way. And somebody who was standing nearby with a pen and pad wrote down Charles Peace's response. Here's what he said. He turns and looks at the preacher, and he says, "'Sir, I do not share your faith. But if I did, if I believed what you say you believe,' And although England were covered with broken glass from coast to coast, I would crawl the length and breadth of it on hand and knee and think the pain worthwhile just to save a single soul from this eternal hell of which you speak. But you and I are too scared to just make the ask with our friend. Sometimes those who don't believe in what we believe can see it from the outside a little bit more clearly than we can. That life and death is at stake If we believe that Jesus is out of the grave, who cares if the person receives us negatively or they start being hostile to us? If if I'm on my way to being raised with Jesus like the Bible promises, and actually like Colossians says, if if there's a sense in which I'm actually already raised with Jesus and seated with him in the heavenly places, right? If that's true of me, then what's the big deal if somebody uh, reacts negatively to me or even is hostile to me, right? I'm only here for a moment. What do I have to lose by that? There's an irony that I noticed in this text this week. Um, It's in verse 26. Paul's talking to Festus and Agrippa, and he says, I think Agrippa knows about everything I'm saying. He's already heard about this Jesus dying and rising from the dead and Christianity beginning because it hasn't all happened in a corner. None of this has happened in a corner, he says. I love that language. This hasn't happened in a corner. But then I was thinking about it, reflecting on that phrase this week. It has happened in a corner. It hasn't happened in a corner. And I was thinking, man, so many Christians I talk to here on the North Shore, it's as if we're living to try to put Christianity back in the corner. Right? Like, like that would be like our, the greatest thing that could happen, is if we could like go huddle off in the corner together with other Christians and just spend all our time there safe from the outside world though Paul is so interested in getting it out of the corner and putting it out on Main Street so everybody can hear about it, we are wanting to get back in the corner and uh, huddle up with our friends, uh, keep it small, right? We don't want our church or our youth group or our uh, small group or anything. We don't want it getting big because then it would be different. It would change new people involved. they are always going to want to do things differently. Uh, we, right now we have the people that we're comfortable with, right? We wouldn't want it to get any bigger. And then when you bring up to them that it's, well, that means that, unbelievers out there who would never get exposed to what you know or get to hear the gospel or get to experience what you've experienced you don't actually feel all that sad about that because your great happiness is to get to just be with other christians in your corner in your holy huddle in your little god squad where you're safe right it's safe there in the corner but y'all <clears throat> if Jesus is no longer in his grave, then like we could have five trillion years to sing kumbaya with one another in the corner and we still wouldn't even gotten started, right? The time that we're here now, this 70, 80 years, is a little blip on the radar of our eternal existence that's going to extend forever and ever and ever. And this is the 70, 80 years that we have a chance not to shove it into the corner, to extend the offer to as many people as you can out of love for them so that they can experience what we've experienced. Now, I'm not going to pretend like I don't ever feel that desire to go be cozy in the corner with other believers. There's something that is so refreshing about being with people who see the world the same way you do, right? It's just so much less painful and hard, right? But just because I feel that doesn't mean it's not wickedness, right? In the end, that's what it is. What's the second great commandment? Love your neighbor as yourself. It's not neighbor love to stay in the corner with your Christians and withhold the offer of salvation to people who need it, who haven't heard about it. In the end, staying in the corner comes from fear. And that fear is conquered by a Jesus who's no longer in the grave, but who has risen from the dead, been seated at the right hand of the Father, where He sends us His Holy Spirit to give us strength and power to be courageous and bold in our relationships with those who don't know Him, for their own good. Well, hey, in the O.J. Simpson trial, the defense succeeded in crafting the whole trial as though it's about this one question: Does the glove fit? In Paul's trial, he also says it's about one question, one central question. And in Paul's case, he's just spot on about what the question is. It's, is Jesus still in the grave? That's what it boils down to for him. That's the heart of it all. Not just for his trial either, for his whole life. And it's a central question for you and me in our own lives too. Is Jesus still in the grave? What's your answer this morning? And if you've hung with me this long, as we've been considering that question, is Jesus still in his grave, I want to just finish with one follow-up question to that, now that you've had time to reflect on the other. The follow-up question is, what are you still waiting for? That's what I entitled this sermon today. What are you still waiting for? It's the, it's the question I have for the Jewish person who might be here this morning, who hasn't yet placed their faith in Jesus. But you've been going through the rituals and the holidays and the festivals, the feasts. You even want to pass them down to your children. But friend, those festivals, those holidays, those feasts, those rituals, they've been carried on in your family for generations and generations, thousands of years by people who were hoping one day in a resurrection existence to come, a resurrection existence that was purchased by the firstborn from the dead, our Messiah, Jesus Christ, who came as the Messiah that Israel was hoping for and then who suffered on our behalf to take the punishment we deserved and then died in our place and then rose from the dead to be the firstborn of a new Israel that would also rise from the dead. And then a whole cosmos, a whole world that would be redeemed from the futility and bondage that it was subjected to back in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sinned. That's our hope. That's the hope of the Hebrew scriptures. And it's happened. Jesus has come. What are you still waiting for? Today could be the day that you give your life to Jesus, the Messiah. But it's also the question I have for the professing Christian who's here today. What are you still waiting for? Like Jesus has risen from the dead, and you believe it, at least in your head. Why haven't you broken with your old way of life yet? What are you still waiting for? Right? Why do you not yet have a new relationship with sin? Right. Or when you're talking to unbelievers, why does that not yet reflect the gravity of the situation? When Jesus has risen from the dead, right? The Jesus we're talking about stood before a Roman governor, not Festus, but Pontius Pilate. He stood before a Herod, not Agrippa, but Antipas, and was condemned by the two of them in your place and in mine and took the punishment we deserved and rose from the dead to give us the power to break with our life of sin and to share The faith that we have with others, what are we still waiting for? If your life and mine are thoroughly and fully explainable, even if Jesus is still in the grave, then we're missing out on the Christian life. There's no big moment left between now and Jesus comes back. The work has been done. What are we still waiting for? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus. We thank you that he lived the life we should have lived and that he died the death we should have died. And we thank you that when he was raised to new life, we were raised to new life with him. And as he ascended into heaven and was seated at your right hand, we too, in a sense, are seated with him in the heavenly places, even now, if we are in him. Thank you for the freedom that there is in that that we can live for you without fear, without fear of judgment, without fear of condemnation, without fear of others and what they might think of us. Lord, help us to be a people surrendered to you, a people who live under your lordship, and a people who live as if you are risen from the dead, Lord Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we close, we're going to sing a song called I Will Follow.